0: You come to the very community and all that God has done. Team effort, a lot of people. <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad everybody that's here made it through the flooding. I'm so glad to see Kathy here. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had somebody break a promise to you? Anybody? Anybody break a promise to you? <laughs> There's small promises like when a friend says, well, I'm going to call you and we'll go out to coffee this week, you know, something like that. Uh, or a coworker is supposed to give you a report by 3 o'clock and then they leave for the weekend. Or a child says that they're going to clean their room tonight and, or stop playing video games in five minutes and then a half hour later you notice that they're still playing video games. Um, but there's also bigger promises. Um, someone borrows money from you, and they promise to pay you back, and, and then you don't, you don't receive it. A contractor promises to stay under budget, and then your thousands over budget. Someone promises to not to drink and drive, or even um, promises that are broken in marriage. So sometimes you wonder, who can I trust, right? Who can I trust with their word? Well, today in our scripture, we're going to look at the faithfulness of God in keeping His promises, especially to the nation of Israel. I mean, after all, if if God hasn't kept His promises to Israel, how can we be confident that He's going to keep His promises to us? And Paul's going to speak to this issue in chapters nine through eleven. Um, so this is really the first part of a two-part message. So I want to encourage you to hang in there for both weeks um, as we look at this, but. God is not through with Israel. We have very rich scripture ahead of us that needs to be linked with what we're studying this morning. So let me put up the outline. Okay, so being in God's mercy, God's sovereign election, God's sovereign mercy, in God's sovereign way. All right, let me just give a short prayer before we we jump into the word. Father, once again, we just thank you for letting us be here. Um, By your wisdom, let us understand your word. We uh, cannot understand anything apart from the Holy Spirit. And as we open up your word, we need you. We depend upon you. um, And we just thank you. You you are the God of mercy. And um, we thank you that you have everything that we need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Paul begins. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong, and I'm going to kind of just say what some of these are here, um, the adoption, God started his family through them. Um, the glory, they had the manifestation of God in the wilderness and in the temple, in the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory. The covenants, there's the covenants with Abraham and the Mosaic covenant. The giving of the law, um, God revealed his word to them. Um, and they were the, the uh, they had the written law, the written word of God. The worship um, in the temple and in the tabernacle, they were to serve. And the promises, um, the, the promises to, um, of the Messiah that was to come through them, and then all the promises that we see are made to, to Abraham. The patriarchs, to them belong the patriarchs, which is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the Messiah was to come, chosen through the nation of Israel. And this last statement here, who is God over all, is just an incredible statement of the divinity of Christ. Um, It's the eos meaning supreme divinity. So it's quite a statement. But as you can see, Paul is grieved. And you know, the font looks a little weird on that. Is that because we, is this how it normally looks? I don't recall it looking like, looking like that. That's why I'm a little bit off. Maybe it's it might have to do with that, that animation, but there's no problem as long as everybody can read it, okay? <laughs> Pardon? Okay. Does it? Okay, good, good. Um, so Paul is grieved. Um, how could Israel not believe in this long-awaited Messiah? And it's important to note up front here that Paul is saying, with the exception of a remnant, that Israel, uh, the remnant through faith in Jesus, that Israel is not saved, right? The nation of Israel, um, his Jewish brothers are not saved, and he's in anguish. And though he's just mentioned that um, nothing could separate us, remember, from the love of God, he still says um, he would be cursed and cut off if that were were possible in order to save his brethren. So when he sees all the glories of Christ that we've been mentioning up to this time in Romans— and he ponders the special privileges that they've been given, um, it breaks his heart. And he knew that someone may naturally wonder, since God has given Israel so much, right, all these privileges, and he's made all these promises to them, hasn't God been unfaithful to his word? You know, what, what happened? So Paul begins with this statement, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Um, you could also underline this phrase, this top phrase, and it's what Paul is going to be trying to prove to us today. I think, the, um, I think it's not working with the clicking. Do you think we should try to put that, turn that back on? Well, the different things that come up on the screen, like they're all coming up at once. Do you see what I mean? Oh, yes, because the on. Is that it? Mm-hmm. Would it be too much to turn it back on or not at this point? Would it take... Okay, would that take a long time? Okay, sorry, Kathy. Um, anyways, so that's the point that Paul is going to make. And if you're taking notes... Um, just kind of go through, as we're going to walk through, we're going to talk about the ways that God's word has not failed. Um, And Paul proceeds to prove this in chapter 9, but in our first section specifically showing that not every true Israelite, or not every Israelite is true Israel. So that's the point that he's going to make. So he says, if you have your Bible open for um, verse 7, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. So just because an Israelite can trace their ancestry back to Abraham does not make him or her, this is important, inherit the blessings that God has promised to Israel. And Paul's going to make the case that true Israel is actually a smaller subset of national Israel. And through them, the the fulfillment of the promises are to be realized. So, before we go into this any further, um, let's look at the people that Paul will be using to prove his point from. Oh, you got it up already. Good. Okay, let me see if I can squeeze through here. Oh, good. Perfect timing. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for doing that. Um, So, and forgive the elementary nature of this. I didn't want the animation turned on, so that's why I had her use the other one, but It is what it is. So I think it's distracting. But uh, so this entire chart is physical Israel, okay? Um, Minus about millions of people. (laughs) So on the inside of the circle are the chosen people of God, true Israel, okay? And on the outside of the circle um, are, you know, just part of physical Israel. So this is something that I've had for about seven to ten years, and I didn't want her to turn the animation on because I think it's, it's very distracting. But um, anyhow, so this is Abraham, obviously, at the top. And then his sons here that we're going to be talking about today are Isaac and Ishmael. And then from Isaac came Jacob and Esau. So as we walk through it, um, if you could just kind of take a peek at that. Um, so as Paul makes the argument, you know, that not all Israel is Israel, basically. Um, He's going to give us two examples, and each of them have two brothers in them. So here's our first one, which is Isaac and Ishmael. Okay. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. So God promised Abraham, as you probably know, he would be a great nation um, with many descendants, too many descendants to count, and he promised them the the land of Canaan and that he would be blessed and that um, he would be a blessing, right? But Abraham and Sarah had no son as of yet, and God promised them a son, but they took matters into their own hands, and Abraham fathered Ishmael, through Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. But although Ishmael came from Abraham, he was not the child that God had promised. Isaac was. Isaac was who God had in mind. And the part about, um, through Isaac your descendants will be named, this is from Genesis 21, 12. And it was the time when Abraham, um, when God told Abraham that he was going to need to let Hagar and his son Ishmael go. Um, to leave because Sarah had wanted them to leave. And so uh, because Abraham's descendants um, of promise were going to go through Isaac. Paul then quotes Genesis eighteen ten when it says, at this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. Now, Abraham was almost 100 years old and Sarah was around 90, I believe. And the scripture tells us that Sarah's womb was dead. So this conception of Isaac was to be a miracle. Life would have to come out of deadness, but God fulfilled his promise, and Isaac was born. So yes, Ishmael is a descendant of Abraham and came from Abraham's flesh, but he was not regarded as a descendant according to the promise. Okay, so the second example of how not all Israel is Israel, and um, I need to warn you, <laughs> a friend that Some of us on the West Coast say Esau, so if I say that, it's Esau. I know it's Esau, especially here in the South. So the second example is Jacob and Esau. So not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So let's let's look at the chart one more time here. Um, So Paul takes it a step further. Not only was Isaac chosen, um, but when Isaac grew up and married Rebekah, and she became pregnant with twins, oh, and she became pregnant with twins, but before they were born, the Lord told her that the older Esau uh, would serve the younger Jacob. And the fact that that Jacob and Esau were twins is so important because there should not be any reason why God would choose one over the other. Um, They both were physical descendants of of Abraham, had the same parents. And if there were any favoring that um, should have been done, it it would have been to the older because the older son always inherited the blessings or the double portion and the honor. But as we said, Jacob was the one whom God chose changed his name to Israel, and he was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Esau was passed over. And you probably remember that Esau sold his birthright for some stew. And also in the book of Malachi, it states um, about Esau. Well, it's actually the, the nation of Edom, which came from Esau. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. So... Um, not a good future there. Um, now, did God choose Jacob? Because oh, pardon, sorry. We're going to get to that. Okay. Yeah, we'll bring we'll bring that up. Yep. Um, so, but I wanted to just say first that um, did God choose mm-hmm. Jacob because He knew somehow Jacob was going to be better you know better person than Esau and no because we see here it was before they were born or before they had done anything that was good or bad so it had no bearing on their character whatsoever Jacob as we know was deceitful and he he lied to his father Isaac it was simply as it says in verse 11 in order that God's purpose in election might stand so It was God's sovereign choice. And verse 11 of the English Standard Version says, in order that God's purpose in election might continue. So God's purpose of election is the reason, therefore we probably should talk about election for just a moment. The term election in Greek means to select or to choose out. Uh, One Bible dictionary lists it as the gracious and free act of God by which he calls those that become part of his kingdom. They are special beneficiaries of his love and blessings. So so here we see God purposefully choosing um, Jacob ahead of time. Why? We we don't know the mind of God, but when he had planned to send Jesus into the world, uh, he decided he was going to come through the line of Jacob not through Esau. Ishmael and Esau were excluded. And I like that word continue in the ESV because even with Abraham, we see God's sovereign election of him as God pulled him out of um, Babylon or of the Chaldeans um, and told by the Lord to go to a place where he didn't even know he was going. So, and then of course we have Isaac and then we have Jacob And it continues down the line with, you know, Joseph, of course, and his dreams and Moses in the the basket, you know, on the Nile. And um, so it, it continues. And Paul adds on to the fact of election, this phrase, not by works, but by him who calls. God does not choose according to works. He calls. It is by him. Um, because of him as it says in another version it's because of God's election and it's important to remember that Paul is writing to the Roman church remember and it was a mix of Jews and Gentiles and so Israel needed to understand that God is free to choose whomever he wants even the Gentiles um, to offer them salvation uh, through faith in Jesus Christ okay now we're going to get to that line Jacob I loved Esau I hated uh, this statement is taken from Malachi uh, 1, it's actually verses 2 and 3, which was, and I had, I had it down here, and I don't remember, um, but 1,400 years maybe after Jacob and Esau had lived, and I was always taught that this statement was in regards to the nations um, that came from Jacob and Esau, which is Israel and Edom, and not specifically in relation to them as individuals, but I have read cases for both. Um, Timothy Keller um, also says, this is important, too, that this phrase was a Hebrew idiom, so which actually meant that one is preferred over the other, rather than hate, as we would understand the word hate, that it was just an, an idiom that was used, something I loved, something I hated, um, not necessarily taken to mean as we would have it. But again, there are varied opinions about that. And the more you study, you're going to see opinions on, on both sides. So to summarize, Paul has shown so far that God's word has not failed because not all of the physical descendants of Israel are true Israel, um, only the children of promise. So the principle for this section is this, God freely chooses who will fulfill his purposes. God freely chooses who will fulfill his purposes. So God's word has not failed. Not, is, not all Israel is the true Israel. And, you know, we opened with Paul being so distraught, you know, once again. And, and I love Paul because he was so distraught over his sin, remember, in chapter 7, and so distraught over his, um, his kinsman Israel, the nation of Israel. And maybe it's because I'm a woman. I love that he's distraught because I can be distraught too. But uh, one pastor, as an application for Romans 9, bought out, Boxes of tissue as a visual and said who should you like Paul be crying out over to God that needs to come to faith in Jesus Um, So I put some tissues on the back You're free to take one if it will help you to remember our text today and to pray But Paul was elected or chosen by God out of national Israel just as Isaac and Jacob were for God's own purpose And it humbled Paul and it caused him to grieve for his brethren and to give his body and soul to try to persuade both Jews and Gentiles to come to faith and rec- receive Christ. Remember that Paul was en route to persecute uh, Christians when the Lord appeared to him. Um, so Paul had, was going one way and God you know, took him in an opposite direction. And Paul glorified God for election. Um, it magnifies the wisdom the power and the sovereignty of God yet it's important to note that that Paul didn't let the truth of election, you know, cause him to sit in front of the TV and eat bonbons all day. You know, he was he was more passionate. He was compelled by the Holy Spirit to tell the world what God has done through Jesus Christ and hopefully to save some, right? So for some application questions, does it comfort you to know that God chose you not on the basis of your works, especially for some of us whose works We're not all that great, have not been all that great. So how has election humbled you that you're part of the grand purpose of God in Jesus Christ? And will you ask God to give you the heart of Paul for both Israel and for your kinsmen, your family members who are just unmoved to the gospel and what Jesus offers them, the forgiveness and grace that he offers them? Okay, let's go to our outline. Next section is God's sovereign mercy. So after speaking about um, election, a first um, objection is raised, and it's this. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? So the question really is, is God unrighteous because he chooses um, who he will, right? It seems unfair, and Paul says, may it never be. And he gives two examples from the book of Exodus, which is really one argument um, in which he says, God claims the right to have mercy on whom he chooses, which doesn't really seem like an answer, but the very nature of mercy is undeserved. Um, so it can't be viewed in, in, in terms of justice or fairness. Um, so the first example he gives is this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So God in his sovereignty is free to give, grant mercy to whoever he, he chooses. And this verse is from Exodus thirty-three, nineteen, And it's a conversation that God is having um, with Moses. And Moses asks God to show him his glory, show Moses his glory. And God responds by saying this. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So God's going to have his his goodness pass in front of Moses. He's going to proclaim his name, which is I am who I am. That's that's the Lord there, Yahweh. Um, And then he speaks of his freedom to grant mercy and compassion on whom he wishes. God's sovereignty over his mercy is tied in with his very name. It's who he is. He is free to pour out mercy on whom he chooses, and it's his glory to do so. And this is significant because of the context of this Exodus passage. It was right after God had spared the majority of the Israelites after the golden calf incident. And God even spared Aaron, um, who had fashioned the calf and built the altar and proclaimed a festival, right? Right and that God would keep Aaron as his high priest after all of that. I mean, just a testament to the mercy of God. Now, Hodge summarizes this better than I can. He says this, It is not unjust for God to exercise his sovereignty in the distribution of his mercies, for he expressly claims that right to do so. And Douglas Moo says, God therefore acts justly, remember we're talking about justice, when he acts in accordance with his own person and plan. So we're going to move on. Paul says in verse 16, therefore, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And this is a very weighty statement, isn't it? It depends on God's mercy. What Paul's communicating is that God's choice or election of people is according to his mercy, not to something in them. It's all of God, and the Israelites could not have earned it. And mankind thinks if they just do enough good things that God's going to sit right up and notice how good they are and then give them mercy. Um, But Paul says that it's not because of human desire or effort. um, Or it also says in the NASB, not not for him who wills or him who runs. So God is not obligated to anyone, and so mercy, again, can't be measured in terms of fairness. But God is merciful, and that's the important thing. He is merciful. And when you consider the the state of mankind that we talked about in our intro session, that no one is righteous, um, not even one. No one understands, and no one seeks God. That was from our first first chapter of Romans. God's not being unfair unfair fairness would mean that the everybody would perish right the fact that god is granting the world righteousness through faith in jesus christ is surely due to his great mercy love and compassion so the second example that paul shows us is pharaoh um, in verses 17 and 18 for the scripture says to pharaoh for this very purpose i raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And this is Exodus 9:16. And here we see that God's sovereign purpose for raising Pharaoh up was that his name would be to declared to the entire earth and as we're going to see in a minute it's so that Israel who is the objects of God's mercy would see God's glory. And Paul repeats that phrase that we said before, he has mercy on whom he desires, um, and then he adds the phrase, and he hardens whom he desires, or he hardens whom he wants to harden. So Pharaoh was like what we spoke of in our first session, he's ungodly, unrighteous, you know, he's under God's wrath, okay? Pharaoh did not recognize God's glory. He did not submit to God's glory. Um, Remember the phrase um, that we had in in chapter 1 in our first session, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images uh, made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Remember how we had that? That's Pharaoh. That's who Pharaoh was. Um, And if you look at all all the chapters that are in reference to the Exodus, and Pharaoh, you're going to see around 18 references to hardening um, based on two Hebrew words, depending on your Bible version again, how many you find. But it's a mix between saying that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, although the first reference in chapter 4 is that God God ref- God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But to harden means to render stubborn. And this, again, going back to Romans 1, is such a great picture of... Um, when we spoke of god giving people over to the sin remember that they desired and their rejection to him just they were exchanging the glory of god and he gave them over and he gave them over Um, god did not stop pharaoh from acting according to his sinful nature right but god displayed god's own glory before his people israel through the hardening of pharaoh's hearts you know, how many plagues did, did God put, did Pharaoh put up with? You know, he just continued in his stubborn, stubbornness, and God continued to be patient with Pharaoh. But in through this, as we see in verse 17, is that God's name would be proclaimed. Sovereign in mercy, sovereign in, in hardening. And then we get to the question in verse 19, which is this. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? So the the question here is really an objection to God's sovereignty. Um, And Paul rebukes the person who would ask a question like this because the question judges God and his actions. And Paul says, basically, who do you think you are, you know, in talking back to the Lord of the universe? And Paul responds with two statements. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? So God is the potter, and he has the right to stoop down and to reach into a doomed lump of clay and pull out, take people for his purposes to create something beautiful for his own glory. Um, it's, remember that the, the clay is doomed, right? And it's, it's God's clay and it's God's world. Um, God, is, God graciously and mercifully intervenes into, into lives with his mercy. So Paul's second response is this. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So God shows forth the riches of his glory both by, through showing mercy to his objects of mercy, but also by patiently enduring wicked people or evil people, you know. Um, I was just thinking, I was explaining to my twins, you probably heard about the um, Oregon shooting and stuff like that. One of the things I was explaining to my twins, because we've been kind of going through Romans 2, is that you know, God fed this young man. He clothed this young man. He let him look at his beautiful world and all these things. God is so patient in enduring, um, enduring evil. You know, evil people or people that have evil intentions. It's just amazing all the good that He does for everyone in the world. But God bore Pharaoh and the Egyptians with with great patience. They were vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. And that word, prepared, um, is is also taken as fit for destruction, that first one. There, those are two separate words. You see where we see both of the prepared? So it's it's fit for destruction. So by implication, um, the vessels of wrath were fit for destruction by themselves, okay? So that, that's the thought on that verse there because those are two separate words that are being used in this passage. So God did not intervene to save The vessels of wrath that were fit for destruction but he did for israel god could have because it says here remember which he prepared beforehand for glory that that's israel so god could have chosen to simply wipe egypt off the face of the planet um he's a righteous judge of sin and we see here although willing to demonstrate his wrath and and make his power known where it says in verse 22 he endured with much patience um so he's a righteous judge of sin, and and Egypt, as we know, was steeped in sin, right? But would the objects of his mercy, the Israelites, have seen the riches of God's glory as he protected them from the angel of death, um, as the parting of the Red Sea, right? And his uh, the cloud in the in the wilderness. I mean, all the different ways that he um, showed forth his glory to them, um, wiping out their enemies, but. Paul says in the same way God is showing forth the riches of his glory to us in Jesus Christ, whom he's called. We are the vessels of his mercy, both Jews and Gentiles. So after Paul here has really clearly portrayed God's sovereign election and God's sovereign mercy, he seems to be going back to his original statement, which was it is not as though the word of God has failed. Remember which we said in the very beginning. And he proceeds to show how God's word is being fulfilled in the calling of the Gentiles, which was also predicted in his word. So let's, let's give one example from the prophet Hosea. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So this was about 850 years before Paul's letter to the Romans and the gospel spreading out amongst the Gentiles. And this would have been difficult for the Israelites to, um, to understand that God would call the Gentiles as his children. But again, the fulfillment of God's word, right? God's word has not failed. Yet for now, in regards to national Israel, only a remnant is saved. And God's word predicted that too. Um, And we're going to revisit that next week when we look at chapter 11. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the numbers of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah, which, as you know, was wiped out, right? Right? So within the masses of descendants of Israel, just a remnant would be saved, and the prophets had foretold this. And it's been said that those who were within the blessings and the promises of Israel knew that as well too. So the principle for our, this section is this: God displays His glory to His objects of mercy. God displays His glory his objects of mercy now if you have your little book with you your little workbook I want you to turn it to um, page 64 and just to say while you're turning there God's word hasn't failed we see he spoke of true Israel um, in his word he spoke of his mercy his freedom in his mercy the Gentiles The remnant of Israel. So those are some ways we've seen. And next week we're going to see even more regarding the fulfillment to Israel. But I want you to go down to the part that says "Summary" on page 64, and that first sentence says, "This is not an easy passage!" Exclamation point. (laughs) Okay. I want you to underline that. So we're all going to have some grace for each other, right? And you're going to have a little bit of grace for me too. Um, But we've looked at election. We've looked at sovereign mercy. But next week, we're going to look at man's responsibility, okay? So we are going to go there next week. Uh, But for today, we're dealing with the scripture at hand, and this is what we're dealing with, God's election and his mercy. So speaking of mercy, have you ever had um, like a super dirty sink, like where it's filled with dirty dishwater and, you know, all the waste from dinners in there, you know, vegetable peelings, leftover spaghetti and junk and You know, just super murky, and then you turn on the disposal, and you watch it, and it goes swirls and swirls and swirls, and it goes down and down and down. Well, I know that I'm weird, but I always think of that sink full of gunk as like the world, right? And it's just spinning around and around, and nothing in that sink, you know, is worthy of God. Nothing in that sink can boast before God. But God so loved the world that he reached down into that swirling mess, and he drew out people for himself with the gospel, and the ones that he had mercy on are no better than any of the other swirling junk that's in there. Maybe like a potato peel, a soggy Cheerio, you know, whatever you may have in there, a crouton. But when they see their Savior and they understand what God has done for them, what they've been saved from, then they worship and they love him. And he has had mercy on them. And that's, then they also long for others to know, you know, this great Savior that they have in Jesus Christ. So God displays his glory to his objects of mercy, both Jews and Gentiles. That's what we've been looking at. So how does it feel to be an object of mercy, where you get to sit before God's word and see his glory, like Moses got to see his glory? It's very humbling. And then how has God's mercy to you caused you to be merciful to others? Understanding that you are, you are no better, right? It's all owed to the mercy of your Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, our last portion here is God's sovereign way, righteousness through faith. Paul says, what shall we say? What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as, it, but as if it were by works. And I want you to look at two words here um, in the NIV. And I like, I like the choice of words in the NIV. Uh, first of all, in verse 30, the word obtained and then 31, attained. Gentiles obtained righteousness, or as the dictionary says, came into possession of it. How? Because God gave it to them through faith in Jesus. They were not seeking it. Um, It was due to the mercy of God. But Israel did not attain righteousness. They did not achieve that goal. Why? Because nobody could. Um, Israel tried to make their own righteousness through the Mosaic system and through works. Choosing religion over righteousness, and religious people are the hardest to reach with the gospel. And I know I was one of them. And I can look back and see all the ways when God tried to just grab me, and I resisted. I resisted. I was going to stick with my religion. So, um, but it says they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written: "Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a stumbling and a rock of offense." And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And this quote is from from both Isaiah 8 and 28. And again, God's word is proving true. Jesus is the stumbling stone for so many. People have to lay down their self-righteousness and admit that they need him. Um, But it says believers will will not be disappointed or put to shame, as it says in other versions. And F.F. Bruce speaks of the rich Hebrew meaning of this verse in Isaiah, and it, and it means this The ones who stand on God's foundation won't panic or fuss or rush around, but will trust in God, confident that His purpose will be accomplished in His own time. So, in regards to the stone, I wanted to show you what Jesus says in Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, "'Have you never read in the scriptures? "'The stone the builders rejected "'has become the cornerstone. "'The Lord has done this, "'and it is marvelous in our eyes. "'Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God "'will be taken away from you "'and given to a people who will produce its fruit.'" So Israel's chief priests and the elders were the builders, and they would reject Jesus for the most part, and he was their marvelous cornerstone. Therefore, Jesus tells them that the kingdom of God would be taken from them, save for this remnant member, of course, and given to the Gentiles. Yet, as we'll see next week, the hope is that this is going to provoke Israel to jealousy. And God has a future in store for Israel. And so we're going to look at that that plan next week. But Paul ends with reiterating his hope for for the salvation of his fellow Jews. He says, Brethren... My heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And if you want to look at God's heart for Israel, you just need to look at Paul's heart for, for Israel. Paul says Israel is religious and lost, and he loves them. And Israel was passionate about serving and about tradition and ritual. And Paul understood what it was like, you know, to have zeal without, without knowledge. Remember, he zealously persecuted Christians before the Lord took hold of him. But God loves Israel, and the gospel was brought to Israel first, but they would not subject themselves to the righteousness that God offered through faith in, in Jesus Christ, and it was freely, freely given. So Paul ends with this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And we'll, we'll discuss more, more of the law, too. And by the way, we're going to discuss faith next week. I know I promised that we would look more, more at faith, and we'll, we'll talk about that next week. But Jesus is the fulfillment or the culmination of the law. And the law was perfect, as we mentioned before, but it cannot save. And, and we'll go more into the law again in, in future lessons. But the goal of the law was to point to Jesus. So our principle for this section is God's only way of salvation for people is through faith in Jesus Christ. And everyone should know that by now. <laughs> and this, is, this way of salvation is for Jew and Gentile. His only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. So God's word has not failed. He's offered salvation through Jesus, the stumbling stone for righteousness. Uh, to all who believe. And I did a study a long time ago on Romans uh, for this section, and they likened Israel to a woman who has a fatal disease. And so she puts on a lot of makeup, you know, heavy eyeshadow, lipstick, um, to make herself look good. And on the outside, she appears lovely, but underneath, she's very sick. Um, So on the outside, it appears that Israel is very holy and the worship and the ceremony and the tradition is very attractive. But on the inside is the rejection of the one who's carried them all these thousands of years and loved them and sent his son to die for them and freely offers them righteousness if they would just turn from themselves to Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that nobody can boast. So who are the religious people in your life that need to know Jesus? They may be better people than you are. (laughs) I'm sure they're better people probably than even me. But they are lost without the righteousness that God offers. Um, And how does the fact that God does not choose people according to their works help you to explain the gospel to people? And finally, how will God's election and mercy change the way you worship Him this week? So, in closing, um, God's Word has not failed, and we've studied some really difficult doctrine this this week and this morning, and uh, it may have led to more questions, but that's what you know your small group leaders, Kathy and Cheryl, are for right? Um, I've n- I don't feel like I've ever been able to speak really articulately about. Um, you know, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility um, to being able to affirm both of them and explain them in a way that they can make sense. But the scriptures teach both, and that's what we need to know. Um, The same Paul who speaks here about election um, is the same Paul that in next chapter says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, And I wanted to close with a quote that I dug up from many years ago. And I must must admit, I don't know anything about... uh, Warren Wiersbe, so if he's way out there doctrinally, you know, I still like his quote. It says this, no one will deny that there are many mysteries connected with the divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They do not compete, they cooperate. The fact that we cannot fully understand how they work together does not deny the fact that they do. And when a man asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled this, Spurgeon replied, I never tried to reconcile friends. Okay. Well let's close in prayer. Father, we we just worship you. Your wisdom is is so far beyond what we can understand. And all we can do is just thank you. We thank you and we praise you for your mercy. We thank you for reaching down through Jesus and scooping us up and allowing us to be part of your family. We thank you for all your promises that we have in the future. We thank you for um, your good care of us now and how you minister to us through the Holy Spirit, through your word, Lord. You are so full of goodness to us. I just pray that um, this lesson will really penetrate our hearts, that we will understand and know you a bit better um, after reading chapter nine. And we look forward to all that you have for us, Father, next week as well. And um, so we just give you the glory, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey.